This is Life of an Architect, a podcast dedicated to all things architecture, with a little bit of life thrown in for balance. Architecture is a field with a wide variety of possible pathways and careers. Today, we're going to focus our attention towards the closely related field of interior architecture. What exactly is interior architecture, you ask? That's what we're going to be discussing, so to that end, we've invited a special guest to give us the lowdown. Get ready to learn all things about this branch of design. Welcome to episode 105, Interior Architecture. Today's episode is generously brought to you with support from Enscape. Empower your design workflow with real-time rendering and virtual reality. Welcome to the Life of an Architect podcast. I'm Bob Borson. And I'm Andrew Hawkins. And today, Andrew and I are going to be talking about interior architecture, what that means, who does it, and why this might be exactly the career path you were looking for. We have a guest joining us today to have this conversation. A graduate from California Polytechnic State University in San Luis Obispo, Joey Shimoda is a practicing architect in the firm Shimoda Design Group, an architecture and interiors design studio he co-founded with his partner Susan Chang 22 years ago at a live-work warehouse in the burgeoning art district of downtown Los Angeles. The firm grew from inside to out, steadily gaining a reputation for innovative workplace interiors, history-conscious building renovations, and bold, forward-looking creative campuses. Joey has been elevated to fellow in the American Institute of Architects, as well as being elevated to fellow in the International Interior Design Association, both of which are the highest and most prestigious honors those institutions can bestow on their members. Hi, Joey. Thanks for joining us today. We really appreciate you coming on the show. Hey, how are you, Bob? Really, it's a treat for us to get to talk to somebody like you about today's topic of interior architecture because we were looking for a while, quite honestly. Yeah. (laughs) And what I wanted is I wanted an architect who had some credibility on interior work so that whatever angle we wanted to come at it, we had someone who knew how to talk it from both sides of the line. And then I was talking to a friend of mine, and she said, I have just the person in mind for you, Joey Shimoda. And then it turns out my firm has done work with you in the past. So it was kind of kismet. Yeah. We were meant to have this conversation. Meant to talk. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So, so we're going to be talking about interior architecture today. And it's a topic that has been on our show list for a long time because we get a fair amount of questions from folks who listen asking about what is this as a profession and as a career path. And we're going to do our best to ask the right questions to you to get a broad overview of what it means to work in the field and how that might happen. But I think we should probably start by just defining what interior architecture actually means, which is something I've actually never done before. Yeah. So we're going to put you on the spot and ask you to define it. I know sometimes, depending on who you talk to, just the words putting interior and architecture together can sometimes raise some hairs and some eyebrows. And many people are, oh yeah, they're absolutely interrelated. And, and some architects go, no, they're not really that related. And so I think there's always been this great tension between what is on the outside and what is on the inside. But for me, I've never really made that distinction. As far back as when I was a, a student, all of the, the architects that I really, really looked at and just admired, guys like Frank Lloyd Wright or Le Corbusier, all the way through anyone from Paul Rudolph to a lot of the architects that we have today, guys like Neil Denari, they don't really separate the idea of design stops at the front door or design stops at a door. 
And so for me, interior architecture just really addresses a different set of questions that has to do with how you occupy space and how space makes you feel. I mean, I think that we spend so much time inside. I think in many cases, we think of things in terms of views. And, you know, we have these great experiences of outdoor views. But I think I remember when I first started really looking at buildings, that the interior spaces started to really become much more interesting because they were much more closer, they were tangible, and they made you respond much more immediately than buildings. Largely because many buildings are not very attractive. And (laughs) (laughs) interiors has, I mean, I think that that's the design is made to make you feel something or to be beautiful. I think that's a really great way to define it. And it's interesting because it's resonating with me because I have a young woman in my office who graduated number one in her class from architecture school. I mean, she's amazing. She's a great, great, great employee. And we're having one of the kind of check-ins that you do when you have a big office like mine and you want to make sure people have a chance to say what's on their mind. And she was asking me about working more in our interiors group and doing more interior architecture because she felt like it have more of an impact on the end user than going through and doing skinning exercises or designing the outside of these giant big office buildings. Right. And they're very gestural and they can be very beautiful and they have a huge impact on people from a distance. But she goes, I want people to walk into a space and I want to do something that impacts that person, the user. And I thought that was a really insightful way for her, who's just two years out of school to go. She's making a pivot in her career, whether she means it or not, but it's responding to something that is not specific to being an architect or being an interior designer. It's about the user. Exactly. I think I actually have a very similar experience to that in the way that I came about doing much more interior work. All through school, everyone tells you that you have to wait a long time before you get to design buildings. And at that time, during my education and my early work years, it was still a true statement. You just got on the train of being in the design studio. Your car might be the last car in the train, and it's going to take a while before you get to be the head, the locomotive on that. As a young architect, I always thought, wow, timing is a really big deal here because we just finished a project and it took five years. And I was lucky because the firm that was in was equally doing interiors and exteriors at the same time and mostly, you know, for the same project. I had not seen that before when I was a student. And I realized that the immediacy of working through an interiors project, the time arc was much faster. I mean, in some cases, six months to 18 months from the time you start the project to being done, which was vastly different than a a building project. And when you're in a competitive studio and there are a lot of talented people that are all really good at what they do, you kind of want to find a way to, to do as much as you can, as quickly as you can. I think that feeling is probably more and more prevalent when you look at just how the speed the world works, how it consume, consume happiness, consume satisfaction, consume design. So you answered it or led into it a little bit, but was it always your plan to do interiors? It sounds like it wasn't. Yeah. But how did you work yourself into doing that? You just explained it, but is there more there than what you said? Right. Well, I think for me, when I was a student, the things that excited me the most was really the process, the process of making things. Like I didn't really know what architects did, but I would go to the first show in high school that I saw was the Venice Biennale that was brought to San Francisco. My recollection is the only time that the Venice Biennale traveled outside of Italy to go to another location. And there were so many great artifacts of what architects did. You know, they had drawings and 
things like drawings on a grocery bag or making models out of whatever sticks and then but also done at a really incredibly high level of talent and execution and I, it made me think that's what i like you know i can draw i can make a model okay but i can draw better than i can make a model and i thought that process that way of working is really what is interesting to me but at the end of the day it's also tactility the color the effect you have by looking at a thing whether it's an object or you're in space and i think that's really much more tangible when you're doing interiors than when you're building buildings by themselves but the profession is so great because after doing this this many years and i still feel like a beginner at so many different kinds of project types and i think that's an exciting aspect of it yeah, the constant learning that's associated with the interior architecture is pretty rapid, partly because the projects are so short in their length that as a case study, each project allows you to explore things and then see how that worked and move on to the next thing in a much quicker turnaround. Right, right. I keep feeling like, and I don't want it to be this way, but I keep feeling like the performance of buildings, the reactions, the ability to interact and change space, change your environment is really going to be the future. I love the fact that every time I think about the future, I mean, we've already seen it from Star Trek or any science fiction, though all those ingredients are always there, which is we haven't had the ability to actually realize them. And so as we get more smart about how buildings are made, the technology within them, and then what we expect them to do. Right now, I've noticed that I went to both the Samsung and Google showrooms in New York, and it used to be a very different kind of sales pitch. It was much more technology. Both of those companies have completely shifted their reach out to the world as being how your home can be the most important technological tool you have. The most easily accessible is, is whatever is Alexa, those kind of things that begin controlling all of those aspects. But what I was so surprised at was that this is now reaching into everything from security to temperature to environmental preferences and so all of a sudden the interior environment is going to be like a spaceship or a holodeck or something like that and so it'll be great to see how that evolves but it also like everything it sort of makes certain pathways easier and acceptable and then maybe not allowing as much creative freedom or as much impromptu creativity in making spaces because people's expectations notch up to like what their minimum is. Well, okay, so let's talk expectations for a minute, but in a slightly different capacity. So I know that when you graduated and you went back to San Francisco and you started working for a firm, which I believe was an interiors-focused firm, mm -hmm. we heard a little bit about how opportunity presented itself to be more creative or take more of a design lead, be the lead car on the train following a certain path. Do you think that that's a traditional pathway that people go from thinking about architecture as I do buildings as opposed to doing interior architecture or even considering interior architecture as a career? I'm not sure it's a pattern, really. I think the way architecture schools are teaching their students vastly varies depending on where you are and where you go. And so their emphasis is going to influence what you're going to end up doing. I would like to talk about that, just something that in my career that has been, you know, maybe it's other people too, but when you talk about the firm I worked for in San Francisco, that was a woman-led firm, and she was an architect, but whatever it was, 1987, 88, there weren't a lot of those around that were doing 
practicing both serious architecture as well as doing interiors. And I really didn't know very much about how to get a job or even what the profession was really about because I was very young. But the school was very generous in that, like many schools, they're supporting their alumni, they're supporting the profession by providing job lists and things like that to help people get located in places. And so I think I just happened to be in a situation where I I saw a place that was in the place I wanted to live and fit the criteria that I wanted, and and I was able to land there. Throughout the rest of my career, though, I've I've worked with, you know, Lauren Ote, who's been an incredibly successful designer, exterior and interiors. And the sensibility that comes from that side or that traditionally interiors has been, if you had to put a gender, it was female. And I don't think that there's a gender to it, but there is certainly, I think, an easier ability for interiors, that sort of tactility, that sensibility to color, working with women and and people around that. I think that's incredibly important because they have a different set of ways of feeling and looking through projects that are not. I also heard at one point that most men, like 70% of men are colorblind. And so when you think about that statistic, you're realizing that Okay, that's why architects like gray, black, white, red, <laughs> orange, because they can see those colors. I even know some interior designers that are colorblind, and it's really fascinating how they look at space and how they look at the way things are made up because of that. I feel the need to point out that all three of us are wearing black shirts at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I know. That emphasizes the floating head. Aspect. That's right. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> I tell people since I have white hair, the black, it's an aesthetic choice, not a default for me. Yeah, so it looks very distinguished. Yeah, and I just do it for the slimming aspect of it, to be honest. <laughs> so do you think that people should go to school specifically for this sort of career path? Or do you think that if you come out of architecture school that you're equipped to start on this sort of journey because all the people that i know that practice interior architecture like that that's how it's defined they seem to come out of school not thinking that this is what they were going to do and then they had a moment or they were exposed to something in a way that impacted them meaningfully that brought some level of appreciation to the interior the finishes the materiality the space making the form making within an existing structure i mean it seemed to impact all of them. I don't know anyone that rolled out of bed one day and said, this is what I want to do. Like something happened. Yeah. And I think that's funny because when I was in grad school at University of Oregon, there was a whole grad school program for interior architecture. Yeah. So I mean, that was their choice and they already knew it. I mean, I'm not saying it doesn't happen both ways, but there are places and you can, if you want to, to study that directly, right? Yes. And so it's, not architecture. While it is integrated in the architecture department, it's a separate entity within that. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think to address that, professionally, there's a great tension between definitions of professional services, between people who are practicing predominantly interiors work versus people who are doing architecture. And it's not until recently that I think certainly the AIA has been much more open to understanding and embracing the, the sort of collective aspect of the profession. It's almost like there's been this left hand never talking to the right hand, interiors and exteriors, feeling like they had to be autonomous. When I keep thinking about this idea of where the future is going to go with what we expect our buildings to do, I think the education of architecture and interior design has to to merge together and they have to be able to work together because I don't think they're going to be mutually exclusive at all. 
I mean, I think the way that we're going to design buildings in 10 years is going to look nothing like the way we're designing buildings now. But then there's also this whole world of, of, for lack of better words, technology and smart materials and smart systems that are going to be so overlaid on the profession of building an environment, a building, a shelter, that we're going to have to find ways of combining that activity and learning about how to do both. I mean, as an architect, I think we always learn because it's such an old profession that we're building cities, we're building whatever it is, infrastructure. And then you realize right now we have so much city infrastructure. We have so many buildings. We also know that we can't afford to keep tearing them down and then rebuilding them. It's just not really feasible. Yeah. And so I think we're going to be forced into a different way of looking at that whole built environment. I did have a question that segues us into the next part, which was, what led you to starting your own office? And did that decision, was it somehow shaped or influenced by the sort of projects that you currently take on? Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. I have to say that for the most part, in my mind's eye, when I left school, I thought I had a fairly straightforward path of being a professional, of being an architect. And so early on, I spent a lot of time working in very, very design-focused firms. After graduating, I realized, well, I need another part of that. I need to understand how to make a building that's a good building. And I also need to understand how to work with clients that are going to be able to enable good buildings and then also be able to make a living at it. And so it sort of drove me from more working in boutique firms to larger firms. And I was able to find an offshoot of a Skidmore Owens and Merrill group that had all of that kind of experience, but were doing it, you know, in a more scrappy kind of way because they were a third of the staff and the projects were the same size. So there was a lot of people wearing multiple hats. And so I got to see this world where all of a sudden people were wearing a lot of different hats and you're doing a lot of things they didn't know how to do, but they were learning how to do them. But also I realized too, that over time, it was a little bit about that whole train thing. There were so many talented people in that studio and we were limited in the size and scope and reach that we were doing that it kind of became obvious to me at some point I would either have to leave or move to another city and represent the firm in another city or do the traditional thing, steal a client (laughs) in in my case. And it's actually interesting because the client's in Dallas. Because we were a small firm doing a lot of different things and at very large scale, the developer just essentially said, you know, I know I'm working with you and one other person in your studio. So I like working with you. So do you think you could leave your job and just do this or help me with these things so I don't have to keep dealing with all these people that I don't want to talk to. And I go, yeah, I'll do that. And so that's how it started. And it started because they were able to sign contracts and give me a retainer that I could actually say, okay, that's enough that I could do it. And for a long time, it was just myself and one or two other people and a lot of moonlighters. But the experience that I had garnered working at the larger firm, both doing interiors and, I mean, we were doing high rises and airports and I was lucky enough to be lead designer on a high rise before I left. And because I knew how that range worked, I was able to still talk the language that would convince somebody to say, yeah, yeah, okay, you can help us with these studies and we'll see how far it goes. And we've always been open to working with other architectural firms in other cities. You mentioned working with Boca Powell. We had a great collaboration with them because we had no local representation or licensing in Texas. But we've done that in Chicago and New York and Washington, D.C. and San Francisco. And we think it's so much more rich to be able to, to work at different scales, but also at different size firms and 
to be a, a collaborative partner. Yeah, it makes a big difference. Yeah, it sounds like a good way to go. More from Life of an Architect in just a moment. Andrew and I are having a chat with Monica Nelson, a teacher at the New Jersey Institute of Technology, as well as a researcher for Enscape, who has the responsibility to explore trends and design workflow processes within the AEC industry. Hi, Monica. How are you doing? Thanks for jumping on the show with us. Hi, guys. I'm well. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So where are you at right now? I'm currently in Bloomfield, New Jersey, which is really mm. close to Manhattan. Well, we're here to talk about Enscape. We have you on because we're going to talk about design workflow. So let's get into that. One of the attributes that Enscape brings to the table is real-time visualization. And I'll tell you, I'm an Enscape user, and we call it working without a net. And so when we're doing these remote calls, I use SketchUp and I put Enscape on top of it and we share the Enscape screen. And so live real time, when we're describing the project, we're flying through it with the client on the call right then. It's amazing. So let's talk a little bit about the ability for clients to experience these spaces. Absolutely. So when most people think of Enscape, they think of more of the visualization, the render side. Mm -hmm. But I always do like to think about it as a workflow tool that really does the job of giving a means of communication between client and designer or architect. And real time is especially critical for this. One thing I describe it as is when you're having a Zoom call with someone or a conversation with someone, as opposed to sending emails back and forth, you really need that real time integration to really understand and have a discussion about the space as a whole. You know, it's interesting. I'm a relatively new user to Enscape. Really started using it almost daily about three years ago. Right when I started using it is when the pandemic happened. It really fundamentally changed our workflow while we we're all working from home and remotely and having client calls and our ability to show it to people. It's a powerful tool. Actually, it's funny you said it. I don't think of it as a static tool at all because I've never used it that way. Really? Yeah. So it's interesting that you pointed that out. I just kind of went in that how you use it. So pretty cool. I was going to say to follow it up, this idea of it being not just a static generator, but there's a possibility for rapid design iteration. How do you think Enscape works or helps in that regard? The real time definitely helps, especially when you're working in a CAD platform, which doesn't necessarily have amazing graphics. You set it up and then you run Enscape and suddenly you're in the space you're designing. You can truly visualize it and experience it in real time. You can see exactly what you're doing, how it's changing the space, how it's feeling. It's more than just, here's a wall, this is where it is. It's really, this is what this space feels like. And being able to kind of experience that in real time, in 3D. Certainly. When we talk about that client alignment, there's also another alignment between the client, the contractor, and the architect that Enscape helps with being able to maybe solidify the expectations of what it's actually going to be in the end product once the contract gets done with it. So what are some ways that that works or how Enscape benefits in that process? So part of my job is sitting down with Enscape users and talking to them about their workflow and how they really use Enscape. And one thing we really found is that Enscape, it is a critical early design tool, but it's also a tool that we're seeing is being used more and more in the later construction phase. And really what it does is you're able to share the experience or the image that the client saw with 
contractor to really align expectations because contractors are very skilled. They can read those kinds of technical drawings that maybe a client can't. So being able to have this tool that really aligns expectations between what the client has seen and signed off on and what the contractor understands, both from the technical drawing as well as the render or the VR experience, it's getting people on the same page with aligned expectations really makes a difference. Yeah, it absolutely does. That's a great thing, especially if you can do that actually during construction as things change. Absolutely. And we are seeing that being used where a last minute change will happen either on the construction side or from a client. Enscape very, very quickly, you can make that change, show it to the client, show it to the, the contractor in the construction phase and have alignment seamlessly. Wonderful. Well, special thanks to today's sponsor, Enscape. Empower your design workflow with real-time rendering in virtual reality. Enscape brings integrated visual exploration directly into your modeling tools so you can focus on creating, designing, and building. Head over to Enscape3D.com forward slash L-O-A-A to get started. And for a limited time, you can receive 15% off your new license. That's Enscape3D.com forward slash L-O-A-A. Thanks again, Monica. We really appreciate you coming on the show with us today. Thanks for having me, guys. It was great. Thanks so much. So as we move into this next part of talking about what it's like to run your own firm and do your own work, I understand how that is and all the administrative time that that takes because you know I've done that. But beyond that, what is it that your normal design happens and what do you focus on or get to focus on or design stuff? Kind of what's your everyday right. work? What's, what's everyday Joey? Right. Everyday stuff. What's also pretty interesting about the everyday aspect, for the longest time I lived in my studio. So the space that you're seeing that was the loading dock and then there was a loft in above and I, I slept up there and I worked downstairs. And, and even now, that's the only change in that I have an apartment above the studio and it's not in the same room, but it's almost exactly, it's just above the, the studio. So for an LA person, I really have an unusual situation because I don't have to commute, which is really great. You've done the work from home thing for a long time. <laughs> you're used to it, right? For a really long time. <laughs> and I have to say, you know, when I was a student, Oh, I guess it was in the mid 80s. And I went to the New York for the first time. And I went to visit Stephen Hole's office. And that was at a time when he was still mostly teaching and he hadn't done any really big projects yet. And I went into a studio and there were nice guys that were there. They were actually from Texas and they were working there as summer interns. And they said, well, Stephen's not here now, but why don't you come in and look at the studio? And, and it was a very similar kind of setup. It was a very messy downstairs and a very, very small uh, loft upstairs. <laughs> He had a weird view out into a cemetery, which I thought was interesting. <laughs> you know, but my view is to the driveway of the loading dock, and it's just a mess most of the time. That's kind of the still romantic notion of what I think a designer should do, which is so, you know, you like live and work in the same place. As I get older, I, I don't think that's necessarily true, but I certainly enjoy that aspect. I have a dog, and so I'm able to walk the dog in the morning, which is really how I start the day, just quietly with with him and we walk and we sort of figure out what's going on. One of the things that the situation that the pandemic has created, which was there was much more time of people being alone and working alone. It started to make me think about what we need to pursue to be able to give design services. And also our work was very much focused in office. So the office sector has been incredibly impacted 
the good news is, is that it's wide open to see what we're going to do in the future in terms of why do people go to work? Will they go to work? What kind of spaces accommodate that? When we talk about hybrid, how much hybrid happens? What does that do with our environments? And so we're spending time thinking about how adaptive reuse and how merging functions together are going to be a design future. So that's some of the things from a design point of view that we're playing with on a day-to-day basis because we don't really know. I have a feeling we're going to have some time to try to figure it out because I don't see everybody flocking out to build new office buildings or go rent office space too, not at least in the next six months. Also, from a creative point of view, in our studio, the way we work, because we're fairly small, we're like seven people, we still do meetups every day to just talk about what everyone is working on. And because we're small, I'm able to do that. If we have three projects, everybody for maybe a half an hour can look at what somebody else is working on and comment on it. Hey, Joey, real quick. Mm-hmm. Are you back in the office full-time with your staff? We're half and half. You're half and half? We're half and half. Yeah, we have a few people that are still located at home, primarily because it suits their lifestyle better, mostly because they have young children. And the pandemic thing in terms of schools has been really difficult. And they've had to go pick up their kids on a dime. And so it's helped out to help improve their lifestyle, which I think is another big shift. I think everybody begins to think about work-life balance much more seriously than they had before. And so there's going to be probably a shift of what we expect as a common work week or how much work gets devoted to being in the studio. You know, I grew up like you guys did and it's whatever it takes mentality. I think that mentality is probably shifting to something else. Not sure what it is because at the end of the day, for me, what drives it all is, did we do something good? Did we do something interesting? And I always know that that's a hard road. It's never easy to get to any level of excellence when it comes to dealing with design and certainly with the quantity of people we have to deal with in building a project Mm. from clients that are five people making decisions to the consultants that we're working with, to the obligations we're trying to meet to be sustainable and then to build the projects. It's, it's an incredible orchestration of, of effort and talent to trust to try to keep the creative aspect intact. Yeah. You kind of mentioned that shift into not whatever it takes, but I think that may happen kind of begrudgingly, you know, <laughs> and I think that's kind of how it happens. But also I'm going to tweak it a little bit more and ask you, what do you think is the best part about being an interior architect? Well, for me, I think the best part is that I don't get to have to define it as just being an interior architect. We design products, we design buildings, we do master plans. I think the best part about all of it is just the the sort of problem-solving aspect of each unique project. You know, and then it's like this game of how is this different than the other project we did? How are these people going to be able to use the space in a way that's going to be an improvement to them? So uh, for me, that puzzle, you know, I had a friend that always said, it's like, you know, there's at least two answers to everything. And so that always makes me think about choices and options. But then also you have to sort of talk to people to be able to say, yeah, that's really me versus that's not me. And that's a different kind of way of approaching doing design. I think if you look at our work, it doesn't, it doesn't all look like the same thing, but there are similar ideas of way, you know, our process is very similar in that we try to arrive at something in the same way, but make sure that it's unique to the person we're giving it to. And so that's the fun part. I mean, that's the part that says, 
that's still part of the dream is how do you make something beautiful? How do you make something meaningful? It's a mental challenge. I realized for myself, first part of the pandemic, when I was alone a lot, and most of us were not used to that. And so I spent so much time with myself and my thoughts, and then then just being on a Zoom call. I realized that this whole concept of rehabilitation through solitary confinement must be the worst thing you could ever do to any human being, because it was starting to make me want to go postal. (laughs) And so it made me realize that you have to talk to people, you have to be around people. And that that's the fun part too. I think that's the one part that the young people who haven't been in an office because they got hired during the pandemic, I hope you really lust for getting into a situation where you can work with people in a room and go someplace you'd never thought you could go just because everybody started talking about different things. Well, you know, this is a topic that I spend an extraordinarily large amount of brain power thinking about when it comes to our office and our firm culture and how we come together to work and what kind of product are we making when we're together versus when we're not together and what's the right balance. And, and I will tell you that you know, we have lots of conversations about how different the firm culture is now than what it was before the pandemic. Part of that conversation always kind of shifts towards there's a faction of people that it seems like their goal is to get it back to what it was. And then there's another group of people that realize it's never going to go back to what it was. Right. We need to create something new that can accommodate what we learned as a result of the isolation or being by ourselves. But I will tell you, I really struggle with this because I don't want to make it just, well, I'm 54 years old, so I know that that's shading my opinion on it. When I graduated from school, the do what you got to do to get things done mentality that you mentioned earlier, I really want to try to find a way to get everybody back in the office, but not because they have to be there, but because they want to be there. Yeah. And we're in the process of redesigning our office. I'm one of the tip of the spear of the team that's working on it. And we spent a lot of time talking philosophically about the kind of space that we're making and what are we doing to try to make and facilitate a work environment that people want to be in instead of them going like them rubbing their hands together and going, Ooh, I get, I can work 50% of my time out of the office this week. And they're excited Mm -hmm. about not being in the office. I want the exact opposite. Right. I think that we're all trying to find out what that secret sauce is too. I also see the benefits of this whole process when we were, we've been doing a project in York for a year and a half, and mostly all the construction administration was done re- remotely. You know, it did teach us some efficiencies about how we can engage with people. And I think the more fluid we get with utilizing remote communication, like what we're doing right now, before the pandemic, I hated video calls. And now it's just like, I really want to see your face. You know, I want to see what you're thinking. and I want to see the reaction. So we're getting closer to connecting that way. But I think that if we're really working on creative projects, it does need to be the chances of of running into each other and talking to each other during the day is so much higher if you're in the same room than Mm -hmm. it is if you're calling somebody up. There will be a balance. And I think that might go back to this whole thing about I'm going to be crazy and say it. It's like you, it's really, instead of five days and on and two days off, it might be three and four or something. I don't know. I think it's going to change. I think the expectation of what a work week is, what it is, will change. But then salary structure will change and all that will change too. Hopefully we'll have an economy that can support it. Well, with all the side hustles these young kids have, maybe that was part of what will allow this to happen. 
Yeah. As everybody becomes some sort of e-commerce person, it seems like. So, yeah. When I think about it from an education standpoint, the creative part really happens better when we're all in the same room. But when we get to that technical part, it doesn't necessarily require us have to be sitting next to someone in an office. Right. But we have to figure out, really, to me, what we have to figure out is that balance of what everybody wants now and this freedom, but still being able to come together and collaborate and have this great sharing of ideas and really easy and standing around a table, looking at something and all talking about other things, right? And right. I think it still doesn't happen that well in a call like we're sitting on now. And it just doesn't work as well, I think, because it's just not as normal. So I think it still works better yeah. to do it in person and have ideas bounce off each other and those kinds of things. You know, I think you bring up a really great aspect of something that I've been observing is that if you spend so much time relying on yourself to just be creative or find your way through the day, kind of feel like this idea of how you make and craftsmanship, and I don't want to say the word trade, but being able to do something, whether it's build a motorcycle, make a painting, or weld something together, I think there's going to be a real strong desire for people to be much more hands-on with that. That the relationship of making, thinking, creating is much more tactile. I think you see a lot of that idea of customization seems to be such a big deal for everyone because it's easy to do and it helps to bring out your personalities. But I think there will be this meditative aspect that people become, that will start to desire more and more that hopefully can infuse into maybe a different way of, of making spaces. I remember when I first moved to LA, SciArc was a school that was really just about people who were building as well as designing. That was a very common thing. Now it's a very different thing. People are almost not touching anything. It's all digital keystrokes. So I think there'll be a world that comes back to that to be much more holistic. And I think that will be end up being more satisfying too. So let's talk about the less shiny stuff a little bit right now. But we got to get <laughs> some of the less shiny bits in. I'm sure it's pretty universal in the design field, but yeah, yeah, maybe you can get a little bit more specific about what may be the most frustrating part about interior architecture. I think the some of the things that I found frustrating being a designer, an interior architect, or even an exterior architect, well, there are a couple things. The idea that everyone has an equal voice with everyone you're talking to has been something that's been very prominent in the last, I'm going to say, eight years, where an awareness of, I don't think it's so much a diversity, equity, inclusion conversation, but it, it was something more of a, not a single leader saying something, democratization of design. And I think that that has done nothing but really water down conversations and solutions for any project. And so I think that's been something that's frustrating. The other part that even makes it even more frustrating is that the tools we use to share with our clients are so realistic and so convincing and in some ways feel so easy that we're constantly asked to change things. That personal taste, whether or not it's a really good personal taste, is often a reaction to the products that we share, that it almost always comes back and creates something or changes something that 
wasn't in the design ideas that the studio had in building that design. So this idea that we cannot convey a vision or help people guide through a vision, that's really frustrating because the way we consume graphic information, architectural and spatial information through, through anything on the internet, through Pinterest, through Instagram, it colors everyone's idea of what they think is right or wrong. And all of a sudden, we're sort of reacting to somebody's just, I just flipped through this and saw this, and this should be what your project looks like. So it really takes power away from the designer because of the fact that we have so much access to really great, great images and great design. Yeah, I have that conversation a lot in my classes in my studios and with other professors about how the image and graphics have taken over the role of the idea behind it. Right. So that you see something. And so instead of students trying to figure it out, what was the idea behind it? They're just like, oh, this is exactly what I want. And I'm just going to do it. And but, 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 but. Yeah. I think it's that idea that you're talking about is that there's so much out there. And then it's so realistic, the things that we do now, that it becomes more about the image than it actually does about the idea behind it and the reasons why and the reason you're doing those things. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that another thing that's really frustrating is that right now, the process of building something is just very cumbersome and it's very expensive. And we're in a time right now where it's just stopping progress from happening. Okay. So this is a little about workflow. So let's talk about workflow for a minute. Andrew and I have covered workflow many different times. And when I hear about renderings and images and the reality and the realism of some of the things that we bring, it figures into, this may sound crazy, <laughs> but I have a project I'm working on right now that I had a, a young architect in my office work on. And he went into Revit, he drew it up, and he sent it over. And we'd had a bunch of iterations back and forth. I got the final product. I took it into a different software and I sketched over the top of it and showed the client that and did not show them the CAD drawings. Mm, yeah. And this is something that I do probably more than I wish I did. Part of it's because it's my workflow now, but part of it's because I don't want the client to see something and think it's finished mm -hmm. and it shade the conversation in some way because they think that mm, yeah. this is it. Here it is, done project, go build this. Right. It looks like such a finished product that they think the process is done. And we're like, no, this was, this was to facilitate a conversation, not to tell a contractor what to do next. So we changed that a little bit. So I'd be interested to hear what, what your workflow is. How does your process work? Yeah, I think that like many designers, we're asked to work at pretty quick speeds. When we create proposals for almost any projects, any of our projects, they, they happen fairly quickly. The missing part is that approvals and discussion and time never get factored into that. But we find ourselves being, we've had enough experience, we really understand the context of a project that we might have. And so we're not totally in the dark about what our parameters are. So that's helpful. But we really start very quickly when we have diagrammatic ideas, we do really start going into three-dimensional SketchUp right away. Because I grew up in a world where the model tells you a lot. It used to be a physical model would tell you a lot, but it took a lot of time to make it. And so we're still thinking about architecture as a space versus a diagram. And so we get into that fairly quickly to help create a sense of massing and an enclosure, whether it's an interiors or an exteriors project. 
even more so when it's an interior because you have so few opportunities to be able to create spatial moments that are specific and different. And so we're always trying to find out what is the opportunity within the envelope to be able to make places. And because we also use Inkscape, my guys are really fluid at it. It gets to be on clay massing very quickly. Lately, we've been trying to keep it more neutral in colors so we understand and can share the ideas and the, the form without getting mixed up with materiality. <laughs> yeah, that classic white, gray, and red yeah. that we were talking about earlier exactly. with the colorblind yeah, guys, exactly. that palette. But, you know, then some people actually think, like, why is it so bland? And they're, they're not making the connection that it's a representation of an idea versus the, the thing itself. And so I think we struggle with that all the time. Well, you know, for guys my generation, that's why basswood models or chipboard models were so great because they abstracted it. And we used to refer to our models as like the antithesis of what like a railroad model would be. You know, the one mm. where it's hyper accurate yeah. trees, little guys ringing the bell at the trains, like train models versus concept discussion models, which were literally as neutral as they could possibly be. And honestly, mm. those are still my favorite. Yeah, yeah, it does. It's great. Some of the lectures I give, there's a book and I can't remember the name of it, but it took all of the little sort of matchbox race cars. And it was all about how graphics and color influence you in terms of thinking about your impression of something. And race cars and racing vehicles are great for that because they're always about getting your attention. They're always great color combinations and they're always combined with some kind of graphic. But then when you neutralize it, you take all the paint away, you start looking at the object in a completely different way. And so I think that speaks exactly to what you're talking about. It's like, how do you engage and how do you bring clients through a process that allow your thoughts or the designer's thoughts to come through more strongly? But I do have to say, once you get into the materiality aspect and the color aspect, that's a whole nother world. And it's really a whole nother talent. I admire people who are really good at understanding how to combine textures and colors. And we do it collectively, but there's some people out there that are just absolutely fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to ask about that real quick. And we talk about this color palette. We have all those options and we have this discussion about it. Do you put in one option and just show them to it? Or do you put in like five options and say, here are all the options. And then you talk about it and pull through it. So like, which way do you take? Yeah, I think we had to do both frequently because of, we work a lot with developer clients and then it's also a mechanism that as a designer, you begin to learn. Sometimes the only thing the client can do is ask you for another choice because they don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> and it's like, you got to learn, listen, it's not personal. You have to understand that this is a way that they get to making a decision that doesn't upset anybody else yeah. or, you know, makes it sound like they've done extra work when they haven't. Mm-hmm. And so we've been more and more trying to streamline down to this is what you should actually do. But it's hard because sometimes it is a couple different materials would work just as equally well. I mean, I think that's the one thing about being a fluid designer is that you understand how many combinations can still be okay and work. So I know that we're trying to do it where we're just saying, just do this one, but it's also very easy for us to go, yeah, this one be just as nice. Your preference would be to have the option one and move on, but sometimes it doesn't work that way. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes it's like, let's just do this. But sometimes it's certain things would be, yeah, it could go either way, you know, depending on what mood you're in and, and, you know, yeah, whatever that, that situation is. I think it's great that you put those options together as an office. I think it's really nice and it's a really good collaborative thing to do as an office. Yeah. 
in my own office, we've been trying to get away, at least I say we, I'll just say it's me. I'll just take all of it. (laughs) With the people that I work with or that I have some sort of dominion over, I say, look, we got hired because we're supposed to be really good at what we do. And so when we have a list of problems that we're trying to solve, and we all know there's a million different ways to solve the same set of problems, as the experts, we should put forth what we think is the best solution. Mm-hmm. And the only time that that solution should deviate with us as the expert is if the priorities change. So if somebody goes, here's my priorities, one through 10 in this order, that should give us a solution. We think this is the way that you should do based on those priorities. But if those priorities change or get reshuffled or some drop off or some become more valuable, it's going to have an impact on what we do. And I totally get why there would be multiple options presented because you don't want all your eggs in a basket. We know what happens when you do that. But even now, I try to make the people that I work with say, if these are your goals or these are your priorities, this is what we think you should do. And we would change that. We would do this solution instead if this is more important than how we considered it in this previous version. That's the way I'm trying to train the people I work with to think about their solutions so that there's a reason, not a eh, dealer's choice kind of opinion about it. That's actually a great observation. And I guess I do want to clarify something because when we're talking about architecture as buildings and as forms, either as a master plan or aspects to a building, that's very different than can this room be these three materials or four materials. Mm -hmm. For us, when I think about those choices, the funny thing is, is I'm not asking them to change the the architectural elements, the spatial elements. I'm just asking them to make a decision on what the surface is. That's probably a clarification that would be important to understand because it's more about creating what the surface is, not necessarily what the volume is. And I think we're much more strong about what the volume is and these volumes should relate to each other in this way and they should be a specific size. I think that's a fair point and a good distinction to make. But then from interiors, it also gives you this craziness about how many different materials you can start having and managing that becomes a big deal. <laughs> yeah. I think the materials qualities affect the space as well. It really make a difference. Concrete room feels different than a wood room, then right. feels different than a hot pink painted room. Yeah. So the materials have an impact on that space also. Sure. Hey, one of the things I wanted to make sure that we touched on, because we want to be considerate to your time, is... A lot of the work that you do takes place within existing structures. So I read in an interview with you online that you thought it was around 90%. And I thought, wow, that's pretty amazing. Do you think that that's the result of the circumstances associated with kind of a sustainable ethos that your firm has? Or is that a result of the type of work that people associate with you so you get hired to do that type of work? I think it's a little of both, but first it's really that we've had experience in in doing that work and people associate that with us. You know, when we think about reuse, it helps us a lot. What I really have found, which I never would have thought because the last, well, the only two big projects we've done in New York are in historic buildings. Well, one's protected, but not so, so seriously protected, but it gave us a lot of great context to react to. Oftentimes when we start from scratch, We're trying to find meaning in what we're making. And when we have a structure that has a hundred years of history of either use or its position in the city or who was in the building, that really makes for a rich starting point of creating a design that's specific to that place. So I do really enjoy that aspect of looking at existing structures because it 
it's so hard to sort of fabricate meaning. You can always apply a narrative to a story and some people are really great at storytelling and finding ways of making that romantic gesture of why the, the thing exists or why you make the space. But it's a harder thing for people to really get excited about if it's completely made up. Whereas if you say, like in the case of the project we're working on in New York, this building was the first building and the postal building in the United States that had three train tracks running right through it and delivered all the mail to New York City. Distribution of all the mail in New York City was through this one location. And you're looking at the High Line, which everyone says that's been such a great renovation of a city asset. And then you say, well, this building used to distribute all the mail for all of New York and all the trains drove right into the building. You're like, that's actually really great because the resultants are the space was affected by the trains, the structure was affected by the train, and we can celebrate that in the reuse of the project. So those kind of things are really helpful in terms of being able to bring meaning and, and preservation and romanticism to a project. Yeah. It'd be nice to be able to work on a project that you could say there were trains running through the building. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't had that in my career. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, that'd be pretty cool. I think the other thing about that and the reuse of existing buildings, some of those are my favorite because, as we alluded to a little bit earlier, about the division between the interior and exterior. Yeah. Sometimes I really like that you can walk into a building right. and it's completely unexpected on the interior what it was like from the exterior. Right. And there's this sort of dynamic thing that happens. Like I walk into this old brick building on the outside and I go on the inside and it's completely modern. Yeah, absolutely. High finish thing. And it's this complete contradictory aspect that happens. Some of those are my favorite spaces. Hey, you know, I would like to maybe say just one other thing about sure. one of the great things I think about working on interiors versus exteriors. For any kind of designer, young designer, being able to create interior space just allows so much more of an immediacy. And you can go from an idea to a built form in a really reasonable amount of time. Mm, and then you yeah. can actually go in and test to see if what you thought in your mind's eye was really effective. Mm -hmm. Does it make an impact? Does it make a difference? And I feel like the more you're able to do that on a faster basis, the better designer you're going to be, the more insightful you're going to be, the more you're going to be able to think beyond what you know. It's hard for that pace of experience to happen when you're just doing buildings because the buildings just take so long. Yeah, agree 100%. Generally speaking, and the people that go along with you through that process, over time, it just becomes part of the, the whole weight of the process. So there's a very different weight when you're in a process for six months as opposed to process you're in for five years. And so I would encourage any designer who's hungry to test themselves that interiors is a very, very good way to do that. Lovely. That's a really nice way to end the conversation. Yeah. Sounds great. Maybe that's my second or third career now. Can I do it as an old guy, right? Can I get <laughs> make that happen? <laughs> yeah. You know, that's the thing that we're all trying to figure out. Yeah. What are you going to do as an old guy? Yeah. I had that conversation last night at dinner and, and it's just like, it's harder. It's harder to, I was talking to the guys in the studio yesterday and I go, yeah, you know, it's like, you got to watch out for that moment when your dreams start to slip away and you, mm. you start questioning those, you have to figure out ways of not letting them slip away. Mm. Yeah. It's not easy. We're all going through a weird time and everybody's, this time chunk is so different than other time chunks in the, in the last hundred years. You know what I think the secret is? Not that I have it figured out, but at least I'm thinking the secret is. So 
obviously we've all heard the value of always being curious and always continuing to try to grow and learn and, and introduce yourself to new things. Yeah. I think about how profoundly my life was changed when I started the website, which really in the first article I wrote was who wants to be relevant. Yeah. And it was because I was having a conversation with a friend of mine who is an attorney who specialized in teaching other attorneys how to use emerging technologies to be better at their jobs. And he said a couple sentences to me and I had, I go, I don't understand a word that you're saying. And I had this moment where I felt I'm just getting better at doing what I do. I'm not learning new things. I'm not putting new arrows in my quiver. Mm -hmm. And so I said, I'm going to learn how to do this just to learn how to do it. And it took my entire life, not just my professional life, but my, my social life, my professional, everything in a totally different direction. And I think that if you don't keep yourself open to those sorts of possibilities, I mean, think in mind, I was in my 40s when I did that. And I wouldn't be who I am today if that were not the case. And for all I know, Andrew's going to start working remotely for the Shimoda Design Group. <laughs> you, know, you never know what's going to happen. Yeah, that's it. Right, yeah. Right, 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 right. So when Andrew and I started courting these with some enthusiasm, and when I started it originally, Andrew joined me on like episode 12 or 13, I think. The whole premise behind this was, what would happen if you just got a couple of architects sitting together, having a beer, and just, what would we talk about? Just like mm -hmm. conversations, things that we'd talk about. And I felt like that's how today's conversation went. I really enjoyed it. And I appreciate you spending part of your time with us. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks for uh, your Saturday morning today, right? No, that's good. And maybe <laughs> next time we could actually do it with a little bit of uh, alcohol. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, if you're ever back in Dallas, you know. Absolutely. Yep. Uh, yep. I'd love to do that. Well, Joey, I want to thank you for taking time out of your weekend to join us today. This was a really interesting conversation, and I appreciate you lending us your time and your insight. Yeah, thanks again so much for hanging out with us this morning. Absolutely. I, I enjoyed talking about it. So that wraps up our call with Joey and Interior Architecture. It was interesting. It didn't go necessarily exactly how I thought it was going to go. I thought it was really interesting, really valuable. But I think that's part of what Interior Architecture is sort of about. It, you can't just put it in a box. It's not something so easily to define as it's this and not that. It's a little bit of everything. Yes, I think it. It was still a great conversation, no matter. Yeah. Wonderful. All right, but now we decided not to subject Joey to the to this week's <laughs> What's the Rank? Even though I bet, I, you know what? If we'd given him more notice, I bet he would have played along. I kind of get that sense that he's that kind of guy. Yeah, especially this one. So are you ready for this week's What's that Rank? Yes, I was. I didn't think about it enough while he was talking. <laughs> But I'm going to kind of be put on the spot, but I'm close. I'm a little bit better than Noble Mimi. You're going to wing it again? So I did tell Andrew what they were, but only like an hour ago, mm -hmm. an hour and a half. Yep. And then we instantly started our phone call with uh, Joey Shimoda. Exactly. So he hasn't really thought about it. Now, in my defense, I thought about it 10 minutes before I told you, but that 10 minutes gave me my answers. And honestly, I don't think these were not that hard for me. So here it is. This episode, we're going to cover under what's that rank? We got to figure out a better. What's the rank? I don't know. What's the rank? What's the rank? We're going to do the top three cocktails. That's what we're doing. Yeah. Right? No beer. No beer. <laughs> I know. And that's fine. It's just how do I pick my top three? That's difficult. 
There's such a wide field to because there's so many that are great <laughs> to choose from. So yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I guess you could pick them by saying like, well, which ones do I drink the most, or which ones represent like, God, man, yeah. Like yeah. there's one on my list that I go every time I'm having this, I know it's because I'm in a great mood, and oh. so. Did it artificially inflate its value on this list? Because if I'm just sitting here watching a stupid movie on Netflix and I'm drinking that drink, I don't know. I don't know if it would have the same place because most of the time when I'm drinking, I'm somewhere awesome. The sun is shining. I got a nice bronze glow on my skin. Like, things are great. Oh, wow. Wow. That's nice. I know. That sounds like some kind of tiki thing or like some kind of (laughs) Mai Tai that's going down. Maybe. Maybe so, yeah. I can tell you one thing, it's definitely not. It's not Malort. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's definitely oh, not yeah. Malort. Yeah, shout out to last week's episode. Yeah. Uh, so I get to go first here? Yeah. I mean, if you want, I can go first too to buy you a little time. No, no, I'm good. I'm good. I got it. All right. You talking about being bronze and maybe like a beach cocktails, which I haven't even pulled that into my mind yet because there's a few that I like, yeah. but I'm going to steer away from those. You know, it'd be great if I had four, but. I'm going to start off. Not with that. So so I'm going to go with sort of cocktails that I have with some regularity. Okay. Not that I have them a lot, but that they're a little bit more in my rotation. My number three drink is going to be a white Russian. Okay. So for those who don't know, what is a white Russian? A white Russian is a cocktail that has vodka, Kahlua, a coffee liqueur, and then a little bit of cream of some kind, like half and half or heavy cream or something. I like that because it's coffee-like with a kick. That's why I enjoy it. There during the pandemic, I was having one or two of those every evening before I went to bed. <laughs> so it became this kind of comfort cocktail. It's not real crazy and it's not really alcohol forward, but it's a nice, soothing sit down, and relax, and have slow drinks of it and have a creamy coffee drink that's got alcohol in it, right? There you go. It counts, right? So, yes, duly noted, white Russian. Yeah, they're not difficult to make and it's an easy drink and you can put them together. Yeah. My number three. Mm-hmm. Which should show up on your list at some point, to be honest with you. If it doesn't, I'm going to go, do I even know you? All right. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> Here's what I think. Before I tell you my answer, everyone's like, oh, my God, Borson, just tell us the yeah. answer. Yeah. All right. <laughs> now, I bet two on my list are on your list, or they should be on Well, your now list. I know what it is. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe not. So my number three is actually a margarita frozen with salt. Hmm. Wow. And... Interesting. Mm-hmm. I almost didn't put it on the list because the other option, the two that were duking at duking it out for the the three spot here, was the margarita and a mojito. Because mm, I will tell you, yeah. when they're good, they're great. You like a mojito, yeah? I love a good mojito. Yeah. Here's the thing: I only order them in very specific locations mm. because most people can't make them right. But yeah. the people that can make them right, it's like they could fall out of a tree and make one on the way down. It's the most amazing thing you've ever had. <laughs> like if you go to Key West, anybody can make an amazing oh, mojito yeah. down there. I don't know what it is. It's like in their DNA. Mm. Every mojito is fantastic. Yeah. If yeah. I go two miles away from my house in Dallas, one of the biggest cities in the country, and ask for a mojito, pretty sure it's going to be garbage. Garbage. It's not yeah. going to be good. And that's what I don't like to make that much because it's a rather involved cocktail. To get it right. Yeah. It takes a lot to of To get work. it right. But I'm telling you, like, those guys in Key West. Yeah, but they are good. When they make it, they look like they're like, this is the easiest thing in the world, and it's sloppy, and they just, like, whip them yeah. out. And you're like, how does this taste so good? <laughs> I honestly think the last time I went, like, every mojito costs, like, $10. And 
and my wife and I were walking along the water's edge, and like all the hotels roll out mojito carts. Yeah, oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Like every sixty feet, there's a mojito cart. You can get one. I think I spent like a hundred dollars. <laughs> every I bought one at every yeah. cart, and I was like, these are so delicious. Every 120 feet, it's a new one. Yeah, they were so that's good. That's funny. Yeah. But you picked a margarita. I picked a margarita because that's more of a go-to for me than the mojito is. Okay. That's my number three. Yeah, when you start talking about beach drinks, my number three is could be this thing called a dirty banana. But Ew, sounds terrible. It's another coffee drink that I drink a lot in Jamaica. It's like a frozen margarita kind of drink, but it's got bananas and coffees and vodka. It still sounds terrible. No, no, no. They're fantastic. They're fantastic. Anyway, anyway. Okay. You're number two. Okay, so my number two is is a gin and tonic. All right, that's another classic, clean, classic, easy yeah. cocktail. And if you know me, you know I drink a gin and tonic with regularity. Yeah, I'm a gin guy. I have yeah. tons and tons of gin, so I love a gin and tonic. All right, interesting. So now I'm puzzled as to what your number one's going to be. Oh, uh-huh. I would have bet my last dollar on this planet that that was your number one. Well, my number one's closely related. So okay. Eh. It's just straight gin. <laughs> That's your number one? No. Yeah, exactly. All right, so my number two is actually a relatively new cocktail for me, and it's an old-fashioned. Mm. And I have become rather adept at making them. That's a, a humble brag a little bit, but I'm, I'm stand-up. Not so humble brag. Yeah, you know yeah. what? I'm not saying I'm the greatest, but I'm better than most. I always say that. Oh, <laughs> uh, okay. Yeah, I think the first old-fashioned I had that I enjoyed was probably within the last year. Oh, wow. So this is a relatively new one for me. And I've gotten to a point now to where I have like bourbon old fashions and there's rye old mm-hmm. fashions. And I like both of them, but I make them slightly different. One's with orange, one is with lemon, one uses regular bitters, one uses this black walnut bitters. I mean, they're pretty solid. All right. And all you people out there, whenever I'd post a picture of it online, because you know how I do, I'll take a picture and stick it on Instagram. Oh, yeah. They're like, have you had uh, a rum old-fashioned? I mean, like, they throw every liquor imaginable and say, you got to try. You should have a tequila old-fashioned. That sounds terrible, man. Everyone comes at me with those, so. Yeah. All right, that's my, that was my number two. Well, I've got my friend. Been drinking old-fashions for years and years, but I'm not a dark whiskey guy, but his preference for old-fashions is rye. You should tell him to make it with lemon, then, as his garnish. Regular bitters. Lemon peel, that's how he should do it, with rye. But he doesn't make them. He just buys oh. them, man. He doesn't <laughs> make them. All right. Okay, so your surprise, I guess, that's coming out of this isn't a real surprise, but my favorite cocktail, which I don't get to drink that often, and there's only actually a couple places that I can get to that'll make it, is a jalapeno gin gimlet. Okay, that's very specific. It is very specific, but it's a gin gimlet, which is... A little sweet, a little sour. I mean, it's, it's almost like a margarita, maybe, but not really. Kind of, I don't know how to say it, but it's got a little bit of sweet to it, a little bit of sour bite, but then the jalapeno gets muddled in it and, and jalapeno garnish, and it's just a gin gimlet with a nice spicy kick. That's my favorite drink to drink when I get a chance. I mean, it's refreshing. It's got a little spice to it, and I like spice a lot, and that's it. Just kind of pow. All right. Punch in the mouth a little bit, and that's that's it. All right. So that's mine. So you should be able to guess what my number one is. I mean, uh, is it going to be gin and tonic? Yes. Oh, all right, interesting. Yeah. Gin and tonic's probably the one drink that I've been drinking the longest hmm. and has stayed in some sort of a rotation for me for the last 30 years. Sure. 
I didn't know that, but I don't drink them year round. Yeah, like I like brown liquor drinks when it's when it's cold outside. Cold out. Yeah. And when it gets hot, like it's so hot right now, it's so hot that I like going to gin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which shouldn't be surprising considering all the British colonials that drank it in India. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Gin is a great drink year round, but it's definitely a good liquor for hotter times of the year, which, right, in the great state of Texas is 98% of the time. Yeah, it's light, it's crisp. You serve it on ice, it's refreshing, it's got a little citrus taste to it. Yeah. And you know what? It's funny. You can ruin a good gin and tonic with too much lime, in my opinion. Oh, yeah. Actually, true. Uh, my gin and tonic, I prefer with cucumber. I'm a cucumber guy. All right. Interesting. Get your veggies but, in. Makes sense. No, yeah. Doesn't surprise me that yours is a gin and tonic. Maybe I should try that because I actually... So I have maybe six bottles of gin oh, in the house right yeah. now, and they're all very different. Hendrix? Yeah, I have one of those. I have that. That's really good with cucumber. Like, really good. It brings out some of the flavors, yeah. So there you go. Margarita, old-fashioned gin and tonic. That's my countdown from three to one. And then white Russian gin and tonic and jalapeno gin gimlet. Super specific for me. I know. Okay, I think we've been at it long enough, and I think we're at a good stopping point. Thank you, everyone, for being with us today for episode 105, Interior Architecture. Special thanks to today's sponsor, Enscape. Empower your design workflow with real-time rendering and virtual reality. Enscape brings integrated visual exploration directly into your modeling tools so you can focus on creating, designing, and building. Head on over to Enscape3D.com forward slash L-O-A-A to get started and for a limited time you can receive 15% off your new license. In addition, special thanks to our media partners, Building Design and Construction, for their ongoing support of the Life of an Architect podcast. Want to get every new episode automatically downloaded? Make sure to hit that follow or subscribe button on your podcast player of choice so you can get alerted every time we publish an unbelievably awesome new episode. And if you got a few moments and feel motivated, we would appreciate a review and hopefully a five-star material space and color rating. To get even more content, head over to lifeofanarchitect.com for blog posts, links, and info about this fantastic episode and all the website has to offer. You can even add your own voice and join the conversation. Thanks so much for tuning in. Take it easy, everybody. Cheers. <laughs>